We are off and running again. Here we are, January the 10th, 2016, lecture discussion number 225 on the book of Romans. And here again we are, back from our annual two-week parentheses. For those of you on the internet, we have been, um, we have been missing for two weeks here because it's very dark and we like to hide in the dark. Now the sun is starting to come out again and we're three, gaining three minutes a day, so we're back in business, if you could call this a business. And quite a bit has occurred in our two weeks where we have been missing, as usual, in our absence during this intermission. And I would suggest to you that the most significant of the significant events that has occurred in the world uh, for us to know about and to pay attention to was the Saudi execution of the Shia cleric. And perhaps you were all doing what we are commanded by Christ to do, and that is to watch therefore. And you noticed and took notice of that particular uh, occurrence. For those who did not, let me help you with it. Saudi Arabia, as is their pattern, took it upon themselves at the beginning of the year to execute a number of prisoners that the Saudi government deemed to be a threat to their state. Included in this execution, a mass execution it was, was a prominent Shiite religious leader, someone highly valued by Iran. Again, Saudi Arabia is Sunni, Iran is Shia. ISIS is Sunni, Hezbollah, Hamas, Shia, Syria, Shia mostly. Now, Pakistan, mostly Sunni. But Sunni, I'm sorry, Sunni, mostly Sunni, but has a Shia component in Pakistan. Understand this Shia-Sunni dichotomy, for lack of a better word. There's two factions, two aspects of Islam that began with the death or a... Oh, my. For those of you on the Internet, the building just made a, a kind of noise... It makes the rest of us wonder about its impending doom. We hear that noise again. We will relocate the church in the parking lot in the cold. Okay. I think the roof just let go of some snow. But there is no snow, is there? Not very much. So whatever that was, be suspicious of it. Anyway, I don't think it's somebody trying to break in. We can rule that out. Back to the lecture be as it may. The two factions, two aspects of Islam that began upon the death of Muhammad, the founder, for lack of a better term, of the nation of Islam. So this is a dispute that dates to the seventh century. Uh, It is essentially a split. When Muhammad died, the debate began as to his heir, the rightful heir, uh, upon his death, and the Sunnis chose differently than the Shias. Not a unique occurrence in religious organizations. When founders of religious organizations um, finally expire or retire, whichever the case may be, most of the time the son of the family business takes over. All you have to do is go around churches in town and you will find the sons took over for the fathers in a very high percentage of these churches that they grew to large sizes. Same with colleges and universities and all of that. By the way, usually the son lacks, has none of the characteristics of the father. And all we have now is a monetary uh, operation. We should have no expectation back to the Sunnis and the Shias that they will resolve this peacefully or peaceably. The overwhelming majority of Islam is Sunni-based. It's about 80%. Could be more. The Shias are barely 20%. So if 20%, if that. Now, because of current U.S. policies, recent U.S. policies and Russian support, Iran, as you know, is on the precipice of acquiring a deployable nuclear weapon. And that, all of a sudden, Colonel Colt, right? The old joke about Colt firearms. Is uh, Colonel Colt made man even, or made man equal? 
And that's what's happening with nuclear weapons. If the Iran, even if the Iranis, even though they are the, the minority, they are the, in the Shia faction, if they acquire nuclear weapons, they become extremely powerful. So with this latest act of Saudi, of the Saudi government, Iran and Saudi Arabia are now careening towards a shooting war. Which is, raises the obvious question. Knowing that U.S. governmental policy has facilitated uh, development of nuclear weaponry, why did the king of the Saudis, or the king of the Sauds, put this particular Shia cleric to death? He didn't have to do it, but he did it. He put to death a man that was highly, again, highly valued by Iran, knowing that they may be right on the brink of a deployable nuclear weapon. Certainly the Saudi government is within range of the Iranian capability. Essentially what the, the king did was a public assassination on full display. And the king had to know that Iran would respond. And obviously the Saudis have a plan Obviously, the Saudis did not fear the Iranian nuclear or military reprisal. It would be equivalent, if you will, and I don't know what, probably not that this strong I was going to say, is imagine if Canada executes the vice president of the United States on TV. I mean, it, it's, it seems almost senseless. Now, the, the Shia cleric didn't rise to that level, but nonetheless, he was a high-valued uh, uh, religious figure to the Iranians. And the Saudis had to have a plan, and they did not fear Iranian military uh, responses. And, and I submit that this was a of purpose, I can barely speak, it's been, I've been out of practice. I submit this was purposeful. Intentional. It was an intentional provocation on the part of the Saudis. What, what are they thinking? And perhaps you remember why. Do you remember the Mecca pilgrimage? Did you see that in the news? The Shia deaths that occurred on the Mecca pilgrimage. Many, many Shias died in that. It was a chaotic event. Uh, and Iran thought that the Saudi government participated in it. It resulted in the stampeding death of many uh, Muslim participants, all of them Shia. You see, both the Sunnis and the Shia make annual visits to Mecca, which is in Saudi control. In any event, Iran is livid, absolutely boiling with hate. For the Saudi government. Retribution is certain. Guaranteed. They've already burned the Saudi embassy. That was just a precursor. It has done nothing. Burning the Saudi embassy did nothing. The people of Iran are screaming for vengeance. To repeat, the Saudis had to know this was what's going to happen. I'm going to kill somebody you care deeply about. You are going to attack. But they did it anyway. They had to know. So what's the obvious conclusion? They did it knowing, counting, and expecting retribution. They expect a counterattack. So I begin to evaluate the Iranian conventional military and the Saudi conventional military. Who has the better conventional military? The Iranians. The Saudis aren't terrible. They're U.S. backed. But you know our government is not interested uh, right now on being on the sides of the Sunnis. We, this government of ours, the United States, is very much Shia focused. So I also think that they they were expecting it and they're counting on it and they're not going to expect or count on U.S. support. So I thought 
I bet this has a relationship to a little watched event a few months ago when the Saudis revealed that they will allow, and hopefully you remember me saying this, they will allow the Israeli Air Force to overfly Saudi airspace for the singular purpose of bombing Iran, destroying the Iranian nuclear facilities. That is it was an ex- What is it again? It's the roof is coming down. Oh, a rope? Oh, okay. Okay, I thought he, he said rope. He did not say the roof is coming down. Okay, so that's not bad. We can handle that. The rope it probably is holding the whole roof to, together. If I if I know the contractors that operate here, so don't don't worry about that a bit. It shouldn't be a big deal. <coughs> okay, excuse me. Again, the fact that Israelis are going to overfly Saudi territory in my lifetime, I would have. The Saudis are sponsors of all kinds of terrorism and hate towards the Jews. They hate the Jews. They're going to utilize the Israeli Air Force to destroy Iran if necessary. They have an agreement. That is an unbelievable, uh, you can't get more serious development than that uh, between the Sauds and the Israelis. Uh, and so keep that in de- detail in mind. I've concluded, uh, and I could be wrong, maybe, but I've concluded that the king of Saud is probing Iran. He's got some benefit that relates to his permission to Israel and his desire to end uh, Iranian nuclear capabilities. He wants to bomb them back to the Stone Age and end this Sunni-Shia issue. He's not going to give up his 80%. And it's see, it's too risky to, any, to be anything but deliber- deliberate. The Saudis seem to be in a position of strength and that's hard for me to fathom because of the Russian-Syrian presence. In any event, watch this. We're going to watch something this week. Watch the Iranian and the Saudi conflict. The Middle East is now in a relentless march uh, towards disorder, chaos, entropy. You pick the word. The wise will understand Daniel 12.9. Daniel says... The wise will understand. And it also says this. None of the wicked will understand. None. So never expect the wicked to figure anything out. But we're to watch therefore. Okay. Where did I leave off? Who could possibly remember where I left off? It was two whole weeks ago. Fortunately, being the meticulous record keeper that I am, as you know, I merely needed to uh, go back and reference the yellow notepad number 224. This is yellow notepad 225. So I number them. People used to say, why don't you title them? That's for supper, Dave, to do. I number them. I number them for precisely this this problem. But that was 224 was from December 13, 2015, and I actually miraculously found it in my two-foot pile of identical yellow notepads, where I throw them. And I, it's, it's yes, it's it's really uh, okay. It's horrible, but I have a pile of them. Do you know that I have, literally, I probably have said this quite a few times, but I'm forgetting what I'm saying now because of my dotage. I have every single notepad that I have ever written on. I've saved them all. Why, you ask? Uh, Sentimental reasons. But I found this one buried in the pile, and that's what I call my filing system. Perhaps you might remember we were investigating the list of Luke 14, 25 through 35. So let's try to bring you all back up to speed here. Luke 14, 25 through 35 is where we were. And we have this astonishing, incredible list that God has given us, that Christ gave us. The priority as it relates to love. That's the first thing on his list. And then he had the meaning of the crossbeam. He tells you that if you wish to be 
his disciple, you have to carry the cross beam. We'll repeat what that means in a minute. And then, of course, was the foundation and the tower that relates to the foundation. Uh, if you were here a few weeks ago, I, I did all of the meanings of all of these things. I will review them slightly, a little bit differently again today. After the foundation and the tower comes the surrendering. I have to learn how to spell surrendering. King. The king who surrenders. He's very important. And then salt is good. So that is the list that Christ gives. All of that, by the way, is a divine order. It's fashioned by God himself. It's spoken by God himself. And all of that is in the context of cannot be my disciple. A phrase that he repeats three times during the speaking of this list. So, this list, the list, is attached to discipleship, and that's something we're going to have to resolve because discipleship has requirements, it has duties, and it has a benefit. Notice I say singular. Discipleship has duties, our requirements, duties, and benefit, which we're about to investigate. That's where we left off prior to our sabbatical. And so I'm going to reread the text here in a minute to restart everyone so we get all everybody back together. I know it's going to be a little bit repetitive. Um, that's okay. It's just how we have to do it in these kinds of situations. Also, it's important to note that Jesus Christ, the Lord God Almighty, the creator of all things, the I Am, places that list and then he gives a parable. And the parable is really, some will call it three parables. I, I, I go both directions because it's, but for the, to be perfectly accurate, he gives one parable that has three parts to it. So right after he gives this list, something happens, and then he gives one parable that is broken into three parts. So, and that's God again. That's the creator of all things. He places the parables, the three parts, if you will, of the one parable, which is the sheep, the coin, and the two sons, immediately after he gives this list. But not really immediately after. He gives the list, something happens, and then he gives the one parable that has three parts. You all with me so far? I hope so. And he does this, uh, and, and this is a tricky part. He does this... How do I put this? Somewhat, maybe. That's not totally accurate, but let me go with that. He does it somewhat for the tax collectors and the sinners who draw near to him because of this list. But he also probably mainly would be accurate, but I don't know that either one of that would be fair. He also does this for the Pharisees and the scribes. And by the way, the, the one parable, three-part parables are traditionally referred to as the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Now, somebody will say, somebody, most people will say the wasteful son, or how you have heard it, the pro- prodigal son. Wasteful, pro- prodigal is the same word. So, after this list, something happens. He's now going to speak directly to the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees and the scribes, one parable that has three parts. And it's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. And I'm, that's the traditional names of those three parts. And I'm suspicious of traditions, as you know, and I submit that those traditions are incorrect. I think that they should be entitled the opposite of that. The found sheep, the found coin, and the found son. The emphasis is not on the losing, it's on the finding. And so I think it's a mistake to call them lost when in fact, the, it, the, as again, the emphasis is on the finding. If you want to make the case for the alive son, uh, I'll go with that for you. There is also a lost son. Because there's two sons. That's why I say it is 
the third part of a three-part parable entitled The Two Sons. The first son is the found son or the younger son. The second son is the lost son. He is the one that is lost. And he is the older son or, if you will, the Pharisee son. If I have a Pharisee son and I'm talking to Pharisees, scribes and tax collectors and sinners. If one of them is clearly the Pharisee son and the older is the Pharisee son, clearly, there's no mistake, then who's the younger son? Or what everyone typically calls the prodigal son. He's got to be the tax collector son. Or or, or the sinner son, if you will. We'll get into that in the next couple of weeks. So, the parable of the two sons is best, in my opinion, the correct... uh, Appellation. And keep both sons at the forefront because of their connection to the tax collector and the Pharisee. If you lose track of that fitting together, you end up losing track of uh, the real actual meanings. So, know that the audience is the tax collectors and the sinners. So, I have tax collectors and sinners. What's the obvious question there? I have tax collectors and sinners in one group, and then in the other group I have Pharisees and scribes. Being mathematical by I see a ratio. I would say mathematically trained, but I start now trying to find congruencies or relationships. Is it correct for me to connect? Tax collectors to sinners or tax collectors to Pharisees and sinners to scribes. In other words, do these relate to, the sinners relate to scribes, tax collectors relate to Pharisees. Okay? And so, know that the audience is tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees and the scribes. And they are two sons, if you will. Two sons are listening to him. The younger and the older are the found son and the older son are the found son and the lost son. So hopefully everybody is with me now. We're all on the bus. Wheels go round and round. And off we go now to Luke 14, 25 through 35. So let's go ahead and read it again. I'll go really fast. I know most of you have heard it two weeks ago. But uh, consider this a necessary review. I'm going to also read part of Luke 15 to bring it all together. So here we go. <coughs> Luke 14:25. Now great multitudes went with him. Let me repeat. Now great multitudes went with Christ. They're going with Christ. Great multitudes. And he turned and said to them, That's amazing in itself. We'll get back to it. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, and the word is actually love less, and does not love less his father and mother, wife and children. You can see that, by the way, Exodus 20.12 and Esau and Jacob. And if anyone comes to me and does not love less his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Cannot be my disciple. So he's giving you requirements, right? And whoever does not bear his cross beam and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, a long, long way off. He sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. So the conclusion 
of the priority of love, the cross beam, the foundation tower, the surrendering king, the conclusion of all of that is salt is good. But if the salt has lost its flavor, and the word really means, the, the sentence literally means, if the salt has been convicted of moronic or foolish thought. The word is, moro- is where we get our moronic from, or moron from. In other words, salt is good. But if you're a moron, that's what, start thinking of it that way, and you'll get the correct reason. But if the salt has been convicted of foolishness, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. But men throw it out. He who has ears, ears, let him hear. Now, Luke 15. That was said. Here comes Luke 15. The list was given. Ended with salt is good. Here. And now what happened? Then, Luke 15, 1. Then. All the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him, to hear him. Soon as he said that, gave that list, bang. Here comes the tax collectors and the sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So, Christ, God, Creator, the I Am Himself, spoke this parable to them. One parable, three parts. Saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. Okay. That should clue you right in right there. I'll deviate for a second. Do you know 99 people who need no repentance? Who are these 99 people that need no repentance? If you need no repentance, what are you? Who's a human being that needs no repentance? Who this 99? Do they exist? This is God saying this. Who's he saying it to? He's saying it to the tax collectors and the Pharisees. He gave them this parable. Why did he do it? Tax collectors came forward with the sinners and the Pharisees started screaming. Part of the one part parable. Or what woman, verse 8, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she has found he calls her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, then he said, A certain man had two sons. So, again, to repeat, this list that ends with salt is good. It's in the context of cannot be my disciple. Causes the tax collectors and the sinners to move. And the Pharisees and the scribes to move. He gives them one parable of three parts. And the last part has two sons. I hope you recognize how amazing this passage is. This may not seem applicable, but it is. I hope. Einstein is famous for saying, time is time and eternal time at the same time. Let me repeat that for you. Time is time and eternal time at the same time. So time is both time and eternal time simultaneously. What he meant by that is that. What he also meant that there is a relative time and an absolute time simultaneously. can't say simultaneously three times. 
without medicine. Einstein meant that time is relative time and absolute time simultaneously. And so there's consequences to his position here. In order to know what I will also call complete time, which is absolute time, in order to measure absolute time, what's required? You have to be the creator of all time. You have to be before time, outside of time, in order to measure absolute or total time. Another brilliant physicist named Heisenberg added that absolute, an absolute observer is necessary for absolute time. I'll say that that's true. And that means the absolute observer of absolute time or total time or complete time also must be the creator of time and has therefore to be omniscient. So the Einstein saying that there is an eternal time or an absolute time is, is insinuating, whether he recognized it or not, that an absolute observer, an omniscient observer, and a creator is required. And we'll get into that logic some other day, not today. But Jesus Christ is demonstrating in Luke 15 that he is the creator of time by these three-part, one-parable references. While he is telling this parable, it is happening at the same time. It's also a future event. So he has relative time an absolute time, an absolute observation simultaneously while telling this parable. All his parables are that way. He's demonstrating that he is the I am, the knower of time. He knows time, which makes him omniscient. Because now you have to have another question, don't you? How much happens in time? How much do I have to know to know time? Anyway. Christ's name, as you know, John 8.24, 8.58 is the I am. John 18.6 where he says, my name is the I am. People fall down. I am carries with it his name, the name of Christ carries with it the truth that Christ is the absolute observer, therefore the absolute knower, therefore uh, omniscient uh, observer, and therefore the creator of time. All of that is in there, and all of that uh, is in this one parable, as it is in all the parables. Okay, let's recap some stuff now. Back up some. I need a beep, beep, beep thing push. Sounds like a truck going backwards. Let's just start at the beginning. Christ speaks to who? Who is he speaking to? I'll repeat it. Now, a great multitude went with him. What's the obvious question? How great is great? How many people I got here? When it's described a great multitude, how many people are in Jerusalem generally around this time? When he's doing this, at the minimum, it's hundreds of thousands. So how big is a great multitude? What do they got to do? They got cable TV, video games, football? No, they don't. I got a guy going through that heals everybody that touches him. Everybody. He feeds thousands and thousands of people. And when they give you a number, by the way, that's the number of military-aged men. So if I give you, he feeds 5,000, I got 5,000 military-aged men. How many old men like me do they have there? Trust me, if there's a guy that's healing people, the old people are fighting to get there. We're on the move. So, 5,000 by the time you add the women, the children, and the elderly, you're talking 25,000 people. Now, how great is this multitude that's following him. 50,000, 100,000 people? How does he keep them all following him? Then, I mean, you're, 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 what kind, what's the weather like? 
Where are they going? Where is he leading them? How many is he moving? Let's just for logistics, let's settle on the number that there's a hundred thousand people in this great multitude. I could be off by half. I could be a little bit larger, but I think that that's pretty accurate. So Jesus Christ is going to do what to a hundred thousand people that are around him? And I know it's a big crowd, by the way. I'll prove it here in just a second. He's going to speak to them. How does he do that? Duh. He's God. He has no problems with this, does he? If he's not God, that sentence doesn't make sense. So Christ speaks to them, all of them, tens of thousands, and they all hear him. Notice once more in the Bible, the miracle is about hearing. The miracle, miracle is, on, is one of hearing, just as it is in Acts 2.8. And faith comes by hearing, Romans 10.17. Christ makes a point all through the Bible. I don't, I'm not going to give you all of them, just a few. But he emphasizes hearing. He spots, lights hearing. They shall, they that hear my voice shall live, or they that hear shall live. My sheep hear my voice. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He says that commonly. Blessed are those who hear the Word of God. Jesus Christ is the Word of God. So, blessed are those who hear me. It's a blessing to hear Him. So, I've always asked, i got a 100,000 people, and they're hearing Him. All of them. What happened to them? What does his voice feel like? What kind of impact does God's voice have on me physically? Much less spiritually. Actually, much more spiritually. Anyway, it's important to understand the difference between hearing and seeing. God's, and, and to know God's definition of hearing. Okay. So, God speaks and everyone hears him. He doesn't have a public address system. He's got a hundred thousand people crammed into a space. They all hear him. And he tells them to love everything and everyone less than him. And then he says that you carry your cross beam. And the cross beam, when you carry it, as you know, if you remember where you were here, the cross beam was the Roman way of a public confession. Everyone that carries or struggled under the weight of a cross beam was admitting that they were guilty of the offense for which they were going to be executed. That is why Jesus Christ did not struggle under that weight of that cross beam. That should be obvious by now. Get rid of the Mel Gibson movie. So, that's the second thing he says. But it is a public confession that we are deserving of death. That's what the man is doing that's carrying it, or the woman that is being crucified. They are admitting by carrying the cross beam that they are confessing and therefore deserving of Roman execution, or whatever the execution is. So he's saying, you have to admit that publicly, that you are deserving of death, that you are a sinner who is guilty, and you merit condemnation. That's the second thing he said. First, love less, now public Admission, confession of guilt. Uh, then, the unfinished defense tower that is easily destroyed by the attacking enemies, who then laugh and mock the one who cannot build a tower that will withstand those of them who come to destroy it. And many Christians, uh, especially in this time of Laodicea, we are in the age of the church being described as vomit. We are in the vomit church. Revelation 3.16. The church of Laodicea has no sound doctrine of Christ. And we're here. doesn't even take much. It's a shallow investigation, a cursory look at the church today. It is devoid of sound doctrine of Christ. They hold the ideas that Jesus Christ is not total, absolute God at all times. This relates, as you know, if you were here to the foundation and the tower. That's the foundation and the tower. Sound doctrine of Christ. If you do not have sound doctrine of Christ when you're attacked, you're going to fall down like a house of cards. You are the flower with no root that is burnt to the ground by the sun and blown away by the wind. 
Churches today hold the ideas that Jesus Christ is not total, absolute God at all times. That is blasphemy. It is a perversion. But it is commonplace today. The contemporary church of our time, what I think is the Laodicean time, believes that Christ is eternally inferior to God the Father. I was talking to Amanda the other day. I have had many people, one particular that I could remember that was strident, that believed that Christ is eternally inferior to God the Father. She came forward to me with her husband at the end of the church service and told me she was never coming back. So I've lost people because I have said that if you believe that Christ is eternally inferior to God the Father, that is evil. And I can't be more wrong. Deuteronomy, and and by the way, again, it it relates to the foundation and the tower. That is your foundation. You cannot be my disciple unless you have this priority in in place, unless you have this public uh, admittance of your deserving guilt or your guilt and deserving condemnation unless you have sound doctrine of Christ. You cannot be my disciple. If you're going to apply for the disciple job, you've got to have those first three. Then you've got to have this one too. You've got to be the surrendering king. Then you've got to understand that salt is good. Leviticus 2. We'll get to that in a second. We're witnessing the time when there is no emphasis on the sound doctrine of Christ. It was not that way when I was a young boy. It is that way now. Deuteronomy 6.4 Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. One. John 10.30 I and the Father are one. John 14.11 Believe me, that I am the Father and the Father in me. How big is the Father? How much? How big does Christ have to be to contain infinite God? He has to likewise be infinite God. In order to have sameness in character, he has to have sameness in size, which requires infinity. Yes, sir. Well, 2.6 and 2.7 causes lots of trouble for people in Philippians. I have done the kenosis theory. I would love to again, but not today. <laughs> John 14.11 Believe me that I and the Father and the Father in one is a mathematical event, if you will. John 14.11 is more than a statement of equality. It is a statement of infinity. Now, I concede that John 14.28 is confusing to a lot of people. I don't have time to, to do it today any more than Philippians 2, 6, and 7. It's needlessly so that John 14, 28 is confusing. Make a note to look it up and see if it's confusing to you. You can do it now. It doesn't matter. I'll move on. But uh, John 14, 11, I'm sorry, John 14, 28 is a statement of location, not inferiority. When he says the Father is greater than me, he is talking about where he is and where, the, where, where God the Father is. At the time he makes the statement, it is a location statement, not a statement of superiority or inferiority. And that's, by the way, the same as Hebrews 2.7, where it says he was made lower than the angels. The angels are in a different location, and he is in a lower location. Anyway, the point is, if you construct a foundation and a tower absent of the truth of the Godhood of Christ, your tower will be destroyed, and the attackers will mock and laugh at you. And deservedly so. And you cannot be his disciple. You just got fired. Next week we'll get into discipleship. What discipleship? When you are required by God to make disciples of men or disciples of your children, what is it that you're doing? I'm giving you the requirements. Then the surrendering king, right? With the creator king, I'm sorry, with the greater king afar off, a long way away. This, the greater king is coming, he knows he's coming, but he's way, way out there. The surrendering king, when he really doesn't have to surrender, there's no imminent threat. The surrendering king nonetheless surrenders. He is certain that the greater king is going to come. Before the greater king even moves, if you want to think of it that way. 
even mobilizes the surrendering king is surrendering. Tremendous wisdom. The surrendering king has the wisdom to recognize his need for full surrender long before the time comes. Long before it is too late. He does it before the time runs out. He knows the greater king will come and end the time of sin. Sin will not reign for much longer. That has an individual application and a collective application. I hope you see that. Christ is going to come and end this mess that we have made. And the surrendering king rightfully falls on his face well before it is imminent. And lastly, salt is good. That is Leviticus 2. Salt must be in the offering. The offering is worthless without salt. If the salt is convicted of being stupid, it is for the dunghill. It's for the sewage system. It's for the pile of excrement. And you can see when he says salt is good, salt must be included in the offering. Salt must be included in, in salvation. He says one eight twenty four, you must believe I am or you will perish in your sins. You have to believe he is the absolute observer, creator, knower of time. Or you will perish in your sins. Salt is good. It's got to be there or there is no salvation. The truth of the Godhood of Christ is required for salvation. If you don't know that, you can't be his disciple. If you don't believe that, you can't be his disciple. Anything else is dung. Do not bring dung in your offering, he's telling you. Bring salt. Now, after saying all of that, who moves? How many people I got? Maybe I got 100,000. Hope I do. And who's coming? All of the tax collectors and the sinners. So now I got to know. I got to figure that out, don't I? How many, ta- how many tax collectors do I got? I got all of them. How many tax collectors were there? City that would swell to maybe a couple of million during a Passover festival. How many tax collectors did they have? The Romans are involved in that and so is the church hierarchy. Church hierarchy loves money. We know that, baby. Just look at their buildings. Huh? How many, how many do I have? How many, let's just ask this question. How many employees does the IRS have? Do they have enough? They never have enough. How many, how many tax collectors do I have? All of them, it says. I mean, read that to you. Isn't that interesting? Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him. I find that very interesting. It'd be a lot of guys, wouldn't it? They came, as soon as he went through this list, they went, we're going. All of them. And that's an important detail for us to comprehend. The response of all the tax collectors to the list, to all the tax collectors to salt is good, is to openly move towards Christ. And I imagine it this way. I imagine they made a run for him. And all of them went. So that makes me think they're what? They all come together. Oops. Oh! Why do you stick your leg out when you bend over? It's a counterbalance. It's kind of like a Tyrannosaurus Rex with a tail. Here's my plan. I have have something that protrudes greatly forward and I have to put some kind of counterweight. It's basic physics, right? Anyway. Yeah. But let's go back to my tax collectors before I run out of time. Oh, good. I'm already out of time. I'm thinking all the tax collectors are moving towards Christ. That means, well, they got walkie-talkies. Okay. He finished. He said salt is good. We're rolling. Or what's a better explanation, probably? Who are these guys again? Just taking the tax collectors. Who is hated more than the tax collectors? 
nobody. These are the most hated men in the city. And they're in a crowd of how many people? 100,000. All of them are there. They have damaged people horribly. They have no friends except each other, if they even that. There are people trying to kill them every minute of every day. And they're in a crowd of a 100,000. Why? What's made them do it? What are they thinking? The most hated, the outcasts, they rushed towards their creator God. It is an act of desperation. They're moving forward towards him as fast as they can. They're fighting their way through a crowd. Because typically, they, they would not get in the middle of a crowd like that. They'd be surrounded by people who want to kill them. Bad idea. So how did they do this? Start imagining it in your mind. I think it was a desperate act. And so therefore, the obvious question. What specifically in this list did they respond to? Or was it the totality of the list? What made these tax collectors push through the great multitude to be near Jesus Christ? And notice that once again, this juxtapositioning of the tax collectors and sinners with the Pharisees and the scribes. Tax collectors and Pharisees. Where else is there tax collectors and Pharisees side by side? Oh, looky, over here at Luke 18. We should go look at that, huh? Maybe that'll help us. I'll go fast. Luke 18:9. Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Oh, it sounds like 99 justified men that don't need to repent. Two men went up to the temple to pray, Christ says. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So here I am. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. In other words, he's worse than the uh, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, uh, or unjust and the adulterers. In fact, he's probably all of that and more. You had to be brutal to be a tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. Does he really? You can recognize a lie when you see that, right? When I have somebody bragging about tithing, I know immediately I've got a liar. Immediately. You tell me how much you tithe, I know you're lying. Or you got some agenda. You want to sing at Easter. Something's going bad here. And the tax collector standing afar off. How far off is he? would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also brought infants to, they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. For such is the kingdom of God. Those who think that little children are not in the kingdom of God are in desperate opposition to that verse said by God. Anyway, I have tax collectors, Pharisees, and infants now put together. And that gives us a great clue to Luke 14.25 through 15.32. Who is this them? Let's go back a little bit. We've got to answer that question. Okay. So he spoke this parable to them. The them, I believe, is the the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, and the scribes together. That's who he spoke it to because it involves all of those people. Why does he do this now in this place? What is the answer to Christ's question here? What man of you, having a hundred sheep if he loses one, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness? Notice that repeating of 99. So what man of you goes after one sheep when he's got 99 in the wilderness? If you leave the 99 to go after the one in the wilderness, what's going to happen to the 99? What's in the wilderness? It's the wilderness. 
You leave 99 sheep to go after one that's taken off. What's the problem? The wolves going to hit your 99 as soon as you're gone? They are. So what man of you does this? Is that a rhetorical question? What woman has nine coins left and she tears her whole house to pieces, if you will, lights a lamp, sweeps the house and searches carefully until she finds that one? What woman does that? What man does this? What woman does this? What's the answer to those questions? What man of you, what woman? Do the Pharisees and the scribes abandon 99 of their suckers? I'm, excuse me, they're, they're the fools that follow. I'm, excuse me, they're sheep. The Pharisees and the scribes, they leave those people behind and go after that one that got away? They do not. Are they going to work themselves to find one coin? What man of you? We have two people, two groups, if you will. We have tax collectors who have bags of money. If anybody's got a hundred coins, it's the tax collectors and the Pharisees. They lose one coin. Do they work hard to find that one coin and rejoice over it? Who does this? Who rejoices over finding? Who is the finder? What's the difference between finding and saving? Who, re- who rejoices over finding, saving the lost sheep? Who is this shepherd that does this? Again, is it the Pharisee shepherd? He didn't do it. No is the answer there. Who calls her friends? Who sweeps the house? Who asks others to rejoice with her? Note that it's a woman. Woman in Scripture is always, or certainly often, if not always, an entity. It's either an ecclesiastical entity or it is a governmental entity, or both, as in the case of Israel. More on that later next week. This is the who is this woman question of that particular parable. Back to the tax collectors. Did they know that salt is good was a Leviticus 2 bloodless offering reference? Did they know that? Is that what moved them to fight their way to Christ? Was it the surrendering king? Did that make them move? Was it the destroyed tower? Was it the crossbeam confession? What caused what I call the running of the tax collectors? What caused it? How many people they have to shove out of their way to get to Christ? Ask another question. How safe is it for those tax collectors to be in a huge crowd of people who despise them? Not safe. So why were they willing to risk their lives to be there in the midst of that? They had to have some kind of information beforehand. What information did they have? What guarantee did they have that they were going to be safe here? How Did they come first and get surrounded? Or did they come last and work their way to the middle? Start trying to figure it out. Tax collectors, again, need armed guards. They need an army to protect them from that group. For some reason, these guys come to hear Christ. And they respond. All of them. Why did these, these, these tax Every tax collector believes he... I read Luke 18. Is Every single tax collector in the tax collector group... Are they like the tax collector in Luke 18? Boy, sure seems like it. If so, how'd they get that way? What's happened to these guys? How come we never have a movie about the tax collectors? And now the tax collectors and the sinners are standing next to the Pharisees and the scribes and the Lord God Almighty himself, God in the flesh, the Word made flesh, the Word of God, speaks to them a parable with three parts, a found sheep, a found coin, and a found son. And notice, here it is again, a younger son and an older son. Remember Genesis 33, 4. Notice the 99 in the wilderness. Notice the shepherd rejoices. Notice the Pharisees are not rejoicing. They're accusing. They're the accusers. So that tells you whose side they're on, right? So you got again, uh, you're back to 23 of 15 of Matthew. Why do the Pharisees not rejoice? 
What is the difference between a tax collector and a sinner? What is the difference between a Pharisee or the distinction between a Pharisee and a scribe? Next week, try to figure that out.